Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life, God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back, and I know we have some visitors today, so a special welcome to those of you who are joining us by way of the Anglican Leadership Institute. It's one of the ministries of our diocese, and we've got a number of distinguished guests with us. They'll be with us here in today's class, and they will be joining us in church, so we're delighted to have them with us. Bishop Lawrence is over here. And um, we have another bishop with us from Ireland and uh, a number of representatives. I see a couple of purple shirts over there. I'm filled with absolute dread at this point. (laughs) But delighted to see so many of you here with us today. We're delighted to have you with us. So for those of you who are joining us for the first time, we are in an ongoing study of the fourth gospel, the gospel according to John. And if you have your Bibles with you or you have them on your phone, you can bring up John chapter 5. This is the chapter we've been looking at for some time now, for a number of weeks. We started off by taking a look at this miracle, and we said that in John's gospel, They're not really referred to as miracles, they're referred to as signs, because they point to something beyond themselves. John is very selective in the material that he includes in his gospel. He makes that clear toward the end. He said, Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in this book, but these are recorded so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's very selective in terms of what he chooses. And we're looking at this particular sign that Jesus performed, which was at the Pool of Bethesda. It was the healing of a man on the Sabbath. And we noted that this caused Jesus to fall out of favor with the Jewish religious leaders, in particular the scribes and the Pharisees. And the reason for this, of course, was that Jesus was not interpreting or observing the Sabbath in the way that they expected the Sabbath should be observed. Jesus goes on to teach them that he is, in fact, the Lord of the Sabbath. But as we read on, we discover that it's not just Jesus' attitude toward the Sabbath that really upsets the religious leaders. There's something else here that bothers them, and that is the Lord's tremendous claims. His claims, which make him, at least in their eyes, equal with God. And they're so upset about this that we're told that they desire not simply to discredit him in the eyes of the people. They had tried to do that before, but by this point in John's narrative, they actually want to wipe him off the face of the earth. They want to kill him. So there is a a somber turn here in the gospel narrative when you get to John chapter 5. And we begin to look at some of these claims of Jesus because we said these are The claims that we all have to deal with. These were not just the claims that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders of the first century had to contend with. These are all claims that you and I likewise have to contend with. Who is this Jesus, this one who claims to be equal with God? So we took a look, first of all, at the claims of Jesus 
And they were rather extraordinary. You would have thought at this point, after he's already run afoul of the Jewish religious leaders, that he'd sort of keep mum. But that is not the case with Jesus. He goes on to make some rather extraordinary claims. In verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5, he claims, for example, that he and the Father work together. He goes on in verse 20 to say that he and the Father, in terms of their will, are in perfect accord with each other. In verse 21, he claims something that only God could claim, that is to be the one who gives life. He says, as the Father gives life, so the Son gives life. And finally, in verses 27 through 29, he speaks of judgment. He says that all judgment has been entrusted to him. Now, those were indeed extraordinary claims, and indeed they did offend the Jewish religious leaders. And we find, if we take them seriously today, they still have the power to offend today. Jesus made some amazing claims. But the thing about Jesus, you know, anybody can make those kinds of claims. But the thing about Jesus is that he not only made those claims, Jesus also had the ability to back up those claims. And what is interesting is that the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, acknowledge that fact. I suppose that was the thing that irritated them more than anything else. It was bad enough that he made the claims, but on top of everything else, he was able to back the claims up. And we know that's what they thought because if you go back two chapters to John chapter 3, you'll recall that Nicodemus shows up in the middle of the night. Nicodemus, who we're told, was a leader of the Jews, which means he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling body of authority within Judaism. All authority was vested in the Sanhedrin. They were the legislative branch. They were the judicial branch. They were the executive branch. They had all the power. And Nicodemus, of course, comes under the cover of darkness. He doesn't want anybody to know that he's coming. But what's the first thing that he says to Jesus when he sees him? He says, we know that you are a man who has come from God. For no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. So the scribes and the Pharisees knew that Jesus was a man who came from God. That's just a fact. I think it's very profound that Nicodemus doesn't say, I know. He says, we know. They knew. And they knew not only because of the claims, but because of the works, the tremendous claims that Jesus did. And we looked at a number of the works that Jesus did to back up these claims. But I pointed out that the one that I think is most interesting is this claim that Jesus makes that he has the power to give life. He has the power to give life. He has the power, yes, to execute judgment, but if you think about it, that is an extension of his power to give life or to withhold life. And we talked about what that meant. Well, we said, first of all, it means that Jesus, because he is the second person of the Trinity, has the power to give physical life. He proved that over and over again. There are at least three occasions, at least three occasions recorded in the gospel, in which Jesus did bring someone back from the dead. And I've always pointed out that each of those instances is more dramatic than the one before it. So the first one is the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. Apparently she had been dead for a very short period of time. Jesus had just arrived at the house. For all we know, the body had not yet cooled, and Jesus went into that upper room, took a few of his disciples and the girl's parents, and said, Talitha kume, took her by the hand, and immediately she woke up. The next instant was the raising of the widow of Nain's son. Now, that is a little more dramatic, because 
The person had not just died. There was actually a funeral cortege making its way out of the town. And Jesus goes up. So this is a person who'd been dead for some hours. Jews generally tried to bury you on the same day. So this is a person that had been dead for some hours. But Jesus raises him from the dead. The last example that we have is, of course, in John's gospel. And it's the raising of Lazarus, who'd been in the tomb for some days and whose body had started to decompose. And Jesus brought him back from the dead. And what's interesting about that particular miracle is that it was a public miracle. We're told that many Jews had come out from Jerusalem to comfort the sisters in the loss of their brother. And at least according to John's narrative, it is that event, that public miracle, which sets the stage for the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Because up to this point, those huge crowds that had followed Jesus in Galilee, they had pretty much dissipated. They dissipated, I think, in large measure because of the bread of life discourse. Where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on me shall never go hungry. And we're told that many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying. And they didn't mean it was hard to understand. The Greek word is skleros. It means hard to understand or hard to accept, rather. We understand what you're saying, Jesus, but... This is hard for us to accept, and we're told that many of his disciples turned back and followed him no more. And then all of a sudden, you get to Palm Sunday, and they're there in droves. It's pandemonium. They're tearing the palm branches from the trees. They're taking off their cloaks, throwing them in front of the mule or the donkey as he's riding into town. And you ask yourself, what accounts for this change of attitude? Well, in John's gospel, it was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He set his face toward Jerusalem. Here comes the Messiah. Who but the Messiah can raise somebody from the dead who's been in the grave for four days, whose body started to decompose? So Jesus is the giver of physical life. There's no doubt about that. He is also, we said, the giver of continuous life, eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is ongoing life, never-ending life. But I think what's most important for us is not that Jesus is the giver of physical life or eternal life, that is resurrection life, but that Jesus Christ is the giver of abundant life. That's what he goes on to say later in this gospel. He said, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. Now, just think about that for a minute. If a person has suffered with a debilitating disease for the greater part of their life, and I've known people like this who have suffered greatly physical pain, and you tell them that they are going to live forever, the first thing they want to know is, am I going to live forever like this? Because if I'm going to live forever like this, thanks, I think I'll take a pass. So Jesus is the giver of physical life. He's the giver of eternal life. He is the giver of resurrection life, that is to say new life. But he's also the giver of abundant life, a full life, a satisfied life, the contented life. That's what Jesus Christ offers to us. 
Now we ask the question, and this is where we stopped last week, what does abundant life look like? We're all delighted that we're not the people we used to be. We're not the people we want to be, but we're not the people we used to be, thanks be to God. We've been redeemed. But what does an abundant, full, contented life look like in a fallen world? What does that look like? Well, I think perhaps one of the best examples of this that you'll find anywhere in the scriptures is found in the 23rd Psalm. I choose that specifically because it's so familiar to us. But I think it's a beautiful picture of what abundant life looks like. That When Jesus Christ comes to bring us life, this is the kind of life that he wants to give you. So keep your finger there in John chapter 5 and skip back for a moment to Psalm 23. And let's just take a look at the 23rd Psalm. I'll read through it. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. If you've memorized this, I know you've memorized the King James Version. But just go ahead and listen to these words from a more modern translation. The King James Version is incomparable when it comes to the 23rd Psalm. There's no doubt about it. But nevertheless, since we're reading from the English Standard Version, let's just listen to it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It is a magnificent psalm. If you look at the heading, it says it's a psalm of David, and indeed it is. I've always wondered, when did David write this psalm? You know that the psalms, as they appear in the Old Testament, are not necessarily in chronological order. I think most people imagine this as David as a young boy, when he was a shepherd sitting out there in the fields, strumming his harp and looking out over those flocks, and as he does... He's inspired to write these words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. As I get older, I'm inclined to believe that this is probably David as an older man looking back over the course of his life. And I'll explain to you why that is. But I say as I get older, now some of you are probably thinking, well, you're not all that old. I hope that's what you're thinking. But the reality is, the reality is I'm 53. And some of you are still saying, oh, 53, oh, to be 53 again. I used to think that 53 was middle age. Until Bishop Lawrence on one occasion, and I, he was talking to me, and I said, well, you know, I'm just middle age. And he said, sure, if you live to be 106. <laughs> Always the encourager, the Father and God over there. As I get older and I look back over the course of my life, more and more do I see the gracious shepherding influence of God. 
And I think you see that more with the advantage of hindsight. The longer you live, the more you recognize this. And I think that was the case with David. I think this is probably David, the latter point in his life, looking back over the course of his life. It hadn't always been an easy life. It hadn't always been a good life, good in the way that the world understands that. It hadn't always been a happy life by any stretch of the imagination. David had faced great trials, difficulties, personal and otherwise. And yet, as he looked back over the course of his life, he could see the tender shepherding of God. Can you see that in your own life? As you look back over the course of your years, can you see the tender shepherding of God at every step? God, in his gracious providence, working out all things for your good and for his glory. You know, I've heard... I can't tell you how many sermons on the 23rd Psalm over the course of my life. And everybody is quick to point out that if God is the shepherd, then we are the sheep. And it is inevitable. I think every sermon that I've ever heard, at one point or another then, the pastor, the minister, the priest, whoever it is in the pulpit then goes on to say, and sheep are the dumbest animals in the world. What an insult. What an insult to the congregation. I want you to know that not a single one of you is a sheep in this respect. Some of you are goats, but you're not sheep. I guarantee you that. Sheep are not dumb animals. It's not a matter of being dumb animals. If there's one thing that characterizes a sheep, it's that they are defenseless animals. They're defenseless animals. Think about a sheep. A sheep doesn't have any kind of teeth or fangs with which to tear flesh. Doesn't have any claws with which to fight back. The only thing a sheep can do is run away. And they're not even fast. Unless you've seen those little boys and girls who are training for the rodeo. It's something called mutton busting. Have you ever heard of that? What they do is they put little four-year-olds who are training for the rodeo on the back of a sheep, hit the sheep, and send it out into the field. And I suppose if you're a four-year-old holding on to your, for your life, that's a pretty fast animal. But aside from that, really sheep have no defense. No defense. And that's what we need to remember when we hear this psalm, yes, the Lord is our shepherd, and we are the sheep. It's not simply a matter of being dumb. It is a matter of being defenseless. We have no means of defending ourselves, nor do we have any means, as we are going to see, of providing for ourselves. That's why the first sentence sets the stage for everything that follows. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. The only reason we shall not want is because the Lord is our shepherd. It's not because you and I have the ability to provide anything whatsoever for ourselves. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And here's something else I want you to notice as you read through the 23rd Psalm. The personal pronouns, it's I, I, 
I. This is a little different from the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? When the disciples came to Jesus and teach us to pray, and he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. It's plural, isn't it? But here in the 23rd Psalm, it is singular. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This is a psalm that is full of promises. And they're promises for you as an individual. Not just for us corporately, but for you. Provided, of course, you're a member of God's flock. The Lord is my shepherd. Of course, these are promises for those who are members of God's flock. Jesus makes it clearer elsewhere in the Gospel of John that there are other shepherds and there are other flocks, but he is the good shepherd. And if you're a member of his flock, by grace through faith, then these are the promises for you. And it is a picture of this beautiful, wonderful, abundant life. The first thing is this. You shall not want for protection. You shall not want for protection. As I said, sheep are defenseless creatures. They have no means of protecting themselves. Furthermore, they are animals that are often unaware of the threat that is all about them. I don't know much about sheep, but I have seen them and shepherds on any number of occasions. In a number of countries where I've visited, I've seen them in Greece, I've seen them in Ireland, I've seen them in England, I've seen them in the Holy Land. And one of the things I notice about sheep, and this is particularly true, I noticed in the Holy Land. Uh, those of you who have been to the Holy Land with me, those of you who are going in the spring, you'll have an opportunity to do this. We always eat at this place. It's a bit of a tourist trap, but everybody loves it just the same. It's called the Shepherd's Fields. And you go there, and there's this big restaurant. looks like a gigantic tent, so forth. And there's a field right next to it, and there are always shepherds and sheep and goats there. Now, I don't know if they bring them in for the tourists or not. But they're there. And the thing that I noticed as I'm sitting there eating and watching these sheep and goats is that sheep and goats eat differently. A sheep, well, let's put it this way. A goat will reach down and pull up a tuft of grass. And he holds his head erect as he munches on that grass always looking around, fearful that he's going to be attacked at any minute. So he is wary. He's watching out. I noticed that the sheep never did that. You know what the sheep does? The sheep bends down, pulls up a tuft of grass, and he keeps his head down while he's munching on it. And he looks and he sees another tuft of grass, and he goes on to the next one, and he munches on that without ever looking up. And he goes over to the next tuft of grass and he munches on that. And what you notice is that he's only concerned with one thing, and that is with his physical satisfaction. He's completely unaware that there's a threat. And so what does he do? He continues to wander to satisfy himself physically. And in so doing, if the shepherd were not watching, he would wander far afield of the flock. If that's not a picture of human beings, I don't know what is. 
That's exactly what we do, isn't it? We're so concerned for our physical satisfaction, our emotional satisfaction, we are completely unaware of the fact that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But thanks be to God, there's one who watches. There is a shepherd who is concerned for us. I love that scene in the gospel. We're told immediately following the feeding of the multitude, the 5,000, where Jesus, at least I think it's in Mark's version of the story, commands his disciples to get into the boat and go to the other side of the lake while he goes up on the hillside to pray. Now, there are a couple of things that are interesting about that particular story. One is that Jesus made them get into the boat. He made them get into the boat. They really weren't given the option. And the second thing is that he told them to go across the Sea of Galilee when it was dark. It was the end of the day. It's about a four-mile journey from where Jesus was to the other side of the lake. And we're told that a storm erupted. That's not unusual on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples thought that they were going to be killed. They thought they were going to lose their lives. But we're told while the wind was against them, a figure came to them walking across the water. And who was it? We all know who it was. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd been up there on the mountain, and he saw that the wind was against them. And he came like a good shepherd to protect the sheep. Listen, if you're a member of Christ's flock, I want you to know God is always watching. You are never left defenseless. There is a shepherd who is concerned for you. And you will never be bereft of his presence or his protection. So the abundant life means you'll never be in want of protection. You'll never be in want of guidance. He leads you beside the still waters. He'll direct your life if you surrender to him. And here's something else. He will restore your soul. This is one of the reasons why I think David is probably speaking as an old man, reflecting back over the course of his life. He'll restore my soul. David had known that to be the case, personally, to restore his soul. That didn't simply mean that David was weary. Of course, there were many occasions in David's life when he was weary. But this restoration, this restoration of the soul, I think, means something much more. I think David may have been reflecting back at this point on those moments in life when he had really blown it. And his soul was weighed down by the cares of sin and the burden of sin and shame and guilt. Think about that occasion, the one we're most familiar with, when David had that adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And then she became pregnant, and he panicked. I pointed out that even in those days, royal families did not like scandal. And so what is he trying to do? He tries to cover it up. And so he sends for Uriah, 
Bathsheba's husband and places him on the front line as one of the military officers and he has him killed. David committed murder, cold-blooded murder. He had blood on his hands and he tried to sweep it under the carpet. Now this is a man after God's own heart. How can that be? He's trying to cover it up, but there's no covering it up because God is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. But David was a sheep of the Lord's flock, and so the Lord was intent on bringing him back. You know, there's a reason why shepherds carry crooks and bishops carry croziers. It's to pull the sheep back in line, knock them back in line if necessary for their own well-being, and that's what God does. He pulls David back in line. He sends Nathan to confront him with his sin. And Psalm 51 is David's great psalm of confession. He pulls out his heart to the Lord. He holds nothing back in Psalm 51. Before I was even born in my mother's womb, I was a sinner. Have mercy on me. If you desire a burnt offering, if you desire a sacrifice, I would give it. But I have nothing to give you to assuage your wrath. I can only throw myself on your mercy and your grace. David discovered, as we discover every Sunday, that he is the one whose property is what? Always have mercy. Hallelujah. And the Lord does have mercy on David, and he restores him. Now, we all know that there were still earthly consequences for his actions, but the most important thing is that David was reconciled to God. Otherwise, he would have perished. There's an expression that shepherds sometimes use when it comes to sheep. The expression is a cast-down sheep. Do you know what a cast-down sheep is? A cast-down sheep is a sheep that has ended up on its back. On its back. Um, it sometimes happens when sheep lie down on their side, and then they roll down a hill, and they end up on their back, or they stumble or fall into a crevice, and they end up on their back. And the problem with a sheep on its back is that it's like a tortoise. This is a fact. Sheep cannot right themselves. They're on their back. And what happens to a sheep on its back is that these gases build up in its stomach and cut off its airway. And within two hours of being on its back, a sheep will always die. It's a cast-down sheep. And so what has to happen is the shepherd has to come along and he has to right the sheep. That's what God has to do with us. You ever feel like you're on your back? You ever feel burdened, weighed down by your sin, by your guilt, by your shame? What God does is he comes and he rights us. He puts us right way up. He restores our soul. You'll never be in want of protection. You'll never be in want of guidance. You'll never be in want of restoration, forgiveness, mercy, grace, pardon. You'll never be in want of provision. God will supply everything that you need in this life. Now, here is a message for people living in first world countries. God is going to supply everything you need, not everything you want. 
God is going to supply everything you need. But he does not promise to provide everything that you want. The shepherd provides for the physical needs of the sheep. In that sense, they want for nothing. And you're never going to want for anything. Isn't that what Jesus told his disciples? He says, oh, little ones, why do you worry? Look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. They do not worry. They do not fret. Your, your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not much more valuable to him than the birds of the air or the poppies or the lilies of the field? God will provide for your every need. What you need, not necessarily what you want. And I think for us living in wealthy countries, we need to really sit down and think about that long and hard. Because sometimes we get confused. Just ask yourself, if everything that you have was taken away from you, your house, your bank account, your cars, your boats, your house in the mountains, your house at the beach, if all of those things were taken away from you and the only thing you were left with was your family and the Lord, would you be satisfied? Because when all is said and done, honestly, that's the only thing you need. And God promises to provide everything that we need. We'll never want for provision, nor will we want for a home. We'll never want for a home, a place to call our own. A famous French psychiatrist, Paul Tournier, once told a story about a young man who had come to him who was deeply troubled. Uh, the young man had gone through a series of relationships. He was really a serial monogamist. Um, he'd gone through a series of careers and nothing ever worked. He was a bright young man. He was a capable young man, but he just seemed to be a lost young man. And finally, Tournier said to him, what seems, if you could just tell me, if you could just distill into words what it is that is missing in your life, what would it be? And the young man went on to explain that his parents had broken up when he was young and he was moved from place to place and he lived with various family members and he said, I suppose when all is said and done, what I've always been looking for is a place. I'm looking for a place. I'm looking for a home. Well, if you're a member of God's flock, I want you to know you've got a home. Jesus told his disciples and they were filled with anxiety about his going away. And he said, I go to prepare a place for you. I love that he says it's a place for you. Peter, I know you, and I'm preparing a place for you. I always point out that when my wife and I had a child, we've had four children, incidentally. And every time, I'm a little more frugal than she is. Just, she's not here today, so I can say it. <laughs> but every single time we had a child, she made me go out and buy all new bed clothes, all new baby clothes, all those sorts of things. And I would say, Kristen, this is child number three. We, 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 don't, we don't need to do all of that stuff. You kept all that stuff. We don't, we don't need all of that. And then we had a nursery, she had to redo the nursery every single time. She said, I'm nesting. I'm like, whoa. 
She said, I'm preparing a place for him. I'm preparing a place for her. It's not just a generic place. It's a place with them specifically in mind. Do you realize that God has prepared a place for you? For you specifically. As a member of his flock, he's got a place prepared for you. We're always trying to return to Eden, aren't we? Ever since mankind was banished from the garden, we have always been trying to get back, longing for the halcyon days, longing for Arcadia. God has prepared a place for you. Here's this. He's prepared for you a family. You and I were created to be in fellowship with each other, and we long for family. We long to be a part of something. On one occasion, Jesus' mother and his siblings were outside a house where he was teaching, and they wanted to see him, and they sent a messenger in, and they said, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to talk to you. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looked around at the people there, and he said, these are my mothers and my brothers. You may come from a broken home. You may be estranged from your brother or your sister. Your mother and father may not be alive today, but I want you to know you have a family. Look around this room. This is your family. This is your forever family. That came home to me in a very powerful way some years ago when I was at St. Helena's and I was distributing Holy Communion. And you know, when you're a minister, you don't get to go home for Christmas. I hadn't been home to my home in Pennsylvania in decades. You know, sometimes you get feeling a little sad about the fact that you miss the old days, you miss your family. And I remember being up there and distributing Holy Communion, and people came up in the posture of beggars, on their bended knees, holding their palms up. Nothing in my hand I bring. And I placed the communion wafer in their hands, and as they looked up and smiled, it was as the Lord said, This is your family. I have given you a family, and you'll never be in want for it. C.S. Lewis put it so well in Mere Christianity. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside, I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. 
Brothers and sisters, that's the picture of the abundant life. And it is the promise to all those who are sheep of the Lord's flock. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep. We thank you that when we are members of his flock, by faith in his atoning work, we lack for nothing. Grant us the grace to fear nothing then but the loss of you, and to cast all our cares on you, knowing that you care for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.